Welcome to Parkview. That's the question. What does it look like to be a follower of Jesus? That's the question. We're going to talk about it. We're using the tattoo thing, and if you noticed, uh, some of us are sporting new tattoos today. They're rub-ons, okay? It's not a, not a large commitment, but um, you're going to get one on the way out. So, hey, everybody gets a Parkview tattoo on the way out today. But I'm actually going to get a tattoo next month. I was going to do it for my 50th birthday, and I just never could figure out what I wanted. And you're going to have a part of this. We're going to have a little contest. Uh, I want a cross on my arm, and whoever draws me the best one, I'm going to put it on my arm. Because I I want to have one, okay? And and we're talking in this series in August about Parkview, Inc. The whole idea is, what does it look like to be a follower of Jesus, okay? Tattoo simply means to mark. And what 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 are the marks of being a believer? And tattoos are controversial, I get that. Tattoos are tricky, they stay with you forever. There's some things you don't want to hear at the tattoo parlor. Eagle, I thought you said beagle. <laughs> We're all out of red, so I use pink. I hate it when I get the hiccups. <laughs> oh, the flag's all done, and you know the waves of fat make a nice waving effect. It's... There's some things you don't want to hear, and here's why I found out I want a, I want a tattoo, um, even more than I did last year when I turned 50, because I found out in studying about tattoos a little bit, because I wanted to talk about it, this is going to be the theme for our August series, I found out that the early Christians did it by the droves. They had crosses, they had fish, they had tattoos on their arms, on their faces, they wanted to identify themselves. It wasn't until 787 AD that the Council of Churches said, denounced that tattoos were bad at some point, okay? And I know that some of you are against tattoos, and I understand that. I'm not endorsing it, okay? If you live at home and your parents pay the bills and they don't want you to have a tattoo, you ain't getting a tattoo. You can wait till you're 50, like me, or 51, or however it works, okay? Uh, I understand that. There are a lot of reasons not to get a tattoo. Some people will judge you. I think they're wrong, but they will judge you. Um, And there's the whole aging thing, you know? Your wavy flag could get wavier as time goes on. Uh, You know, butterfly tattoo back here could turn into a pterodactyl at some time in your life. I think I'm pretty safe at 51, you know. I think I, hopefully all my parts will stay together pretty good from here on. But here's a tattoo that kind of summarizes why you should be really careful with your tattoo. Live without regrets. <laughs> it's just such an irony. If you're uh, if you're against tattoos for biblical reasons, however, I need to help you understand something, okay? Uh, The only place in the Bible that talks about tattoos is Leviticus 19. It says, do not cut your bodies for the dead or put tattoo marks on them, okay? A, that was Old Testament. So unless you came prepared to give an animal sacrifice today, you better lighten up on that one a little bit, okay? (laughs) B, these tattoos were talking, this was about pagan worship. Do not cut yourselves for the dead. It was a marking for the dead. It was a cultic pagan worship thing that God was forbidding. See, the same chapter that tells us not to mark our bodies also tells us not to cut our bodies. It tells, tells us not to cut our sideburns. It tells us not to eat meat with the blood still in it and not to wear clothing with two types of fabric mixed together. Okay, so unless you also don't have an earring, unless you have lamb chop sideburns, unless you've never eaten a steak, anything less than well done, and you don't have polyester cotton blend socks on, you shouldn't look down your nose at somebody else that has a tattoo. You're taking it completely out of context. 
I'm going to get a cross on my arm, and I know that it's really just, uh, you know, something that everybody kind of does, but it'll mean more to me. It's something that I want to do, um, and, and so I, I'm giving you the opportunity to draw me one. I might just do this one, but I'm giving you the opportunity to draw me one. I've got a pastor friend down in Bloomington whose son is actually a tattoo artist. So I'm going to go down to Bloomington and get inked, and uh, and and I and I want to do that because I I I want to I want to have that I want to have that on me for the rest of my life. I want to represent that. It's a conscious decision I'm making. Now, there's some things that you would expect and you wouldn't expect with tattoos. You wouldn't expect a middle-aged mom to have a skull and crossbones on her neck. If you walked into a bar and there was this big burly biker up there and his vest had crept up a little bit and you saw a butterfly, you'd, you'd probably think you walked into the wrong bar, okay? But when... When we talk about being followers of Jesus Christ, we're talking about what does it look like to be a follower. So I'm using this ink analogy, I'm using this tattoo analogy to talk about what it should look like as a follower of Jesus Christ, especially if you go to Parkview, what kind of tattoos, what kind of markings ought to be on you? This is kind of, a, August is our pre-season time for us. It's kind of our, our spring training. It's kind of preparation for the big fall things that we're going to do and, and, and the things that we're getting ready for. So we want to help you with this in the month of August to understand what it looks like. Okay, How do we do that? Well, we're going to do that by skipping all of church history and going all the way back to the New Testament. We're going to do that for the next four weeks. We're going to go back to the New Testament and look at how the early believers did things to use them as examples. You may not know this, but we're part of a group of churches called the Restoration Movement. Uh, there are 6,000 churches across the United States, and we're all linked together. It's non-denominational. We're independent. We don't have to do anything together, but we've just linked ourselves together to go back and to restore the New Testament Christianity and to unify the believers. I'm actually going to Saddleback in a couple of weeks to talk to them about hooking up with us on some stuff that we're doing because this is really important. We think we need to get away from all the denominational stuff, get everybody unified and restore the New Testament, restore Christianity back to the New Testament. So we're going to do that. How do we get back to the New Testament? What does it look like? What kind of ink did they have back then? And I, the first one we're going to talk about today is the lips tattoo. I believe they would have lips as a tattoo. They would be telling their stories. Uh, church got started in Acts chapter 2. The very beginning of the church was when the Holy Spirit came upon the apostles and Peter got up and spoke. The church got started. The very first thing that happened in the first church was that somebody told somebody about Jesus. That's one of the four identifying marks that we're going to talk about this month that identifies you as it marks you as a Christian. And as soon as I say that, your natural reaction is going to be, oh, he's talking about evangelism. And you saw that drama, it's hilarious, all the bad ways that you could do evangelism. And you're thinking of some guy with a name tag going door to door, some guy on the street corner saying, you're going to hell. I just like doing that every once in a while. Hell. You're going to hell. That's what you think of, but that's really wrong. Scott McKnight says evangelism means good news. What we're supposed to be doing is good newsing people. That's evangelism. That, that's what it really is supposed to mean. It's supposed to be, hey, I got a good news. You want to hear it? Good news. As Peter got up, because he had good news at, 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 at the crucifixion, he denied Jesus. And Jesus reinstated him. We talked about this at Easter. And he said, hey, I got good news. You guys killed the Son of God, but you can still be saved. And they were like, cool, that's how the church got started. So he had a story, and so do you. And yours might not be radical. It might not be a crazy radical story. Maybe you, maybe you grew up with Jesus, but it doesn't matter. You've got a story. 
And it doesn't have to be a sermon. So when I mention the lips tattoo for you, please understand, you, I'm, I'm not going to use Peter as an example today. That's how it got started, but I don't want you to preach. You should not preach without a license. This is against the law in the state of Illinois. Okay, don't do it. But you have a story, and you do need to share your story. It's the way the church got started. So I'm going to take you to John 9. If you've got your Bibles, I want you to turn to John 9, because this is a story about a guy who did not have any credentials to preach. As a matter of fact, he wasn't an evangelist or a preacher or an apostle. He, he doesn't really even know who Jesus is. But he got the lips tattoo very, very quickly. Chapter 9 of John, verse 1. As Jesus went along, he saw a man blind from birth. And the disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind? See, they're, they're, there's this presupposition that some people have that if there's something wrong, God must have done it. And Jesus said, nope. Neither this man or his parents sinned. But this happened that the work of God might be displayed in his life. Okay, I've said this many, many times. I've got to keep saying it over and over again. Sometimes people say, well, why did this happen? I don't know is the answer. Okay? God causing it is probably not the answer. Jesus clearly says here that his blindness was not his fault. It was not his parents' fault. It's just a thing that happened. And Paul said all things can work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So because he was born blind, I'm going to, I'm going to take the work of God and make something happen. The work of God is going to be displayed in his life. It's really, really great. And then Jesus adds this weird little phrase in here because he's like, he's kind of like, and by the way, while I'm talking about it, sin is not the issue. Blindness is not the issue. Work of God is the issue. He says, as long as it is day, we must work, do the work of him who sent me. As night is coming when no one can work. While I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. There's a short little window here. There's a sense of urgency, he says here. Listen, it's not about sin. It's, it's not about blindness. It's not about sight. It's about the work of God. And it's really important that we understand this because there's a, there's a time frame here. Someday, the world's going to be over. Someday, we're going to die, and that time frame is going to be over. So there's urgency. Having said this, Jesus spit on the ground. He made some mud with the saliva. He put it on the man's eyes and said, go. And told him, go wash in the pool of Siloam. When the Bible puts something in parentheses, that's usually a good indication that there's an important reason for it. This is not just like, oh, and by the way, this word means scent. I think there's something deeper here. This is the, this is the pool of scent, S-E-N-T, the pool of scent. He told him to go wash in the pool of scent. Okay? We all need to go be washed in the pool of sin. We all need to have our lips tattooed and go tell our stories. This is what's going to happen here to this man. So the man went and washed and he came home seeing. And his neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging said, Isn't this the same guy who used to sit and beg? And some said yes and some said no. Okay, here, here's the folk. Here, here's, the, here's, the, here's the equation for you people. Here's your opportunity to bow out. Okay? At this point, some people are going, yeah, that's him. Some people are going, no, that's not him. And, and he could have just walked away, okay? If you've been healed by Jesus, you don't have to go be washed in the pool of scent. You don't have to be sent. You don't have to worry about the work that we can only do while it is day. When someone says, hey, I heard you were a Christian, you can go, hey, how about those bears? And change the subject, right? Just move right along. You, this guy could have walked away. He could have spoken with an Ozzy Osbourne accent so you couldn't understand him. He could have pulled out his cell phone and said, wait a minute, I think I'm getting a call. And he could have just avoided the whole thing and walked away. He did not have to do this, okay? You do not have, please understand this, you do not have to get the lips tattooed when you become a Christian. 
If you get healed from your spiritual blindness, you are very fortunate. And you can keep that to yourself. And God is not going to say you can go to heaven or not go to heaven based on what you do. Because we're saved by grace, through faith. Okay? And for some reason, God in his mercy, if you decide that you get healed from your spiritual blindness and you want to keep that story to yourself, God will still take you to heaven. I wouldn't. I'd kick your butt out. But God will. Because he is a God of mercy. I just want you to understand that. My favorite story from the Olympics so far, I mean, there's so many great ones, Michael Phelps and all of it, but I love the Olympics. But the most interesting, ironic story is the badminton players that got kicked out for trying to lose. Did you see that? Okay, okay if, you, if you didn't follow it, what happened was there, there were several of these teams that figured out that they'd already made it into the next bracket, and if they won this next round that they were going to be in, that they, they didn't need to win it, that it would actually be better for them. They'd play an easier team if they lost. So they actually played to lose, and the people in the stands in London are booing them, and it's this really awkward situation. And the Olympic Committee kicked them out for trying to lose. Because that's against the spirit of the Olympics. And I applaud them. That's exactly right. See ya, lazy little birdie beaters. You're out of here. <laughs> the problem is, that's my impression of a lot of Christians. Well, I've already made it to the next round. I'm already saved. I'm not going to do the work of him who sent me. I'm not going to go to the pool of sin. I'm already in. You can do that if you want to. The blind guy couldn't. He couldn't do that. Because when you've really been saved from your blindness, you can't help but tell the story. So verse 9, he says, wait a minute, he insisted. He himself insisted. No, no, it was really me. It was really me. I'm the man. Well, how then were your eyes open, they said. He said, well, the man that named Jesus put some, made some mud, put it on my eyes, told me to go to wash in the pool of Siloam, and I went and washed, and now I can see. I want you to notice something. He does not try to give answers that he doesn't have. He does not try to be a, a theologian. Well, the incarnate Son of God came to earth, fully God, fully man. He had all power from on high, and he graciously healed my infirmities. I don't know why Sean Connery is a theologian. It's just the only, it's the only other voice I've got, okay? He doesn't try to explain how it happened. He doesn't try to explain the theology behind it. He just tells them the facts. Nothing but the facts. Here's the facts. I went and washed in the pool. Now I can see. Verse 12. They go on. Well, where is this man? I don't know, he says. Okay? I don't want to keep coming back to this, but he did not try to answer the questions that he didn't have answers to. Here's the problem. A lot of people don't want to share their story because they're afraid of the hard questions. You share your story and people are going to go, well, what about suffering? Well, what about the Old Testament? Well, what happened to the dinosaurs? Well, which came first, the chicken or the egg? Well, speaking of chicken, what do you think about Chick-fil-A's stand on gay marriage? <laughs> Practice this with me. I don't know. Come on, I want to hear you. I don't know. This is really important. People will respect you for that. You don't have to have all the answers. Skip down to verse 17. So finally they turned to the blind man again. They said, what do you have to say about him? It was your eyes he opened, and the guy still doesn't give more than he can figure out. But all he can figure out here is, well, he must be a prophet. He doesn't really even know yet that Jesus is the Son of God. He doesn't realize that he's the Messiah. 
the Son of Man. He doesn't get that yet, but he knows he's connected to God because he used to be blind and now he can see. He knows he's got connections. The Jews still did not believe that he'd been blind and received his sight, so they went to get his parents. <laughs> I love this. Is this your son? The one you say was born blind? How is it that he can now see? And they said, well, yeah, that's our son. Uh, that's, uh, that's little Johnny. That's the little scar from when he fell out of the crib. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's him. But listen to this. The parents said, we know he was born blind, but how he can see or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He's of age. He will speak for himself. Lazy little birdie beaters. <laughs> Why did they do that? Next verse. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews because already the Jews had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Christ would be put out of the synagogue. Isn't that beautiful? That's just, just wonderful. Verse 24. So a second time they summoned the man who had been born blind and they said, give glory to God. We know this man is a sinner. You know, renounce this thing. This can't be, this can't be right. They're trying to twist the truth around. And here it is, ladies and gentlemen. The best evangelism answer anybody ever gave in history. Whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. Here's what I do know. I was blind, and now I see. Deal with that. That's in the Greek, it's not in your version. That's <laughs> what I know. That's the best evangelism answer anybody ever gave. I don't know anything about all the questions that you want to have answered. Here's what I do know. This is what happened to me. My life used to be A, and now it's B. See how simple that is? There's a lot of other stuff I can't explain. All I know is I got this testimony. This is my thing. This is what was told. This is what happened to me. This is how things happen in my life. And every Christ follower ought to have a tattoo on them that has lips on it so they remember that wherever they go, they don't have to answer all the hard questions. They don't have to get involved in the debates. All they have to do is say, hey, you know what? I used to be lost and now I'm found. I used to be blind, but now I see. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. That's all I got. This is the bottom line. The first mark of a Christian is lips because... We are never more like Christ than when we help lost people become found. Again, back to John 9. He said, as long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Because night is coming when nobody can work. There's a window of time here. And there's a sense of urgency here. Did you know, did you know that the United States of America is now the fourth largest mission field in the world? Did you know that? Only China, India, and Indonesia have more unbelieving people than the United States of America. You're like, well, wait a minute. I thought we were a Christian nation and we sent missionaries everywhere. I follow Andrew Marin. I blogged about him a couple of weeks ago who's helping work with a homosexual community downtown. He, he tweeted, I just caught up with some tweets last night. He tweeted that he was on a plane yesterday with a Korean youth group from South Korea who was on a mission trip to Dallas. Does that just blow your mind? 
The, the, the Africans and, and, the, and the Koreans and other countries are starting to realize that even though we might have started things to help over there, that now we've become a non-Christian place and they're starting to send missionaries to us. And I guess it just makes me feel like there's a sense of urgency that we've lost around here about the fact that lost people need to be found. Tony Campolo started a speech many years ago by saying, people all around you are dying and going to hell and you don't give a damn. And then he said, and what's worse is that most of you are more upset by the fact that I just said damn than the fact that lost people are all around you dying and going to hell. Jesus said it this way, night is coming. Night is coming. Don't you see how important everything we do around here is? Don't you see how important the cannonball things that we're doing around the world are and the things that we're doing here and getting ready to plant another campus? Don't you realize that when I tell you that there are 4 million people within a 30-minute drive time of the Parkview campuses, we've got work to do? Because that's what I do. Charles Spurgeon, the old preacher, said, If sinners be damned, at least let them leak to hell over our bodies. If they perish, let them perish with our arms around their knees. Let no one go there unwarned and unprayed for. There needs to be a sense of urgency. When I think about urgency in the lost, I always go back to a story my uh, almost 20-year-old daughter, Becca, getting lost on the beach back when she was four. We were camping out um, Outer Banks. Uh, we were camping in a campground in, in the Outer Banks of, of North Carolina, and the beach was over there. And so we kind of set up, and we were off the cousins, a whole bunch of extended family. Then Becca was the youngest of all the cousins, and so she was the cute little four-year-old that everybody was kind of taking care of. So we didn't worry too much about her because there were a lot of older cousins around taking care of things. And, and our, our beach site was right here, and our campsite was right here. There was just one dune in between. And they, they'd gone back with Becca to the campsite, and then they realized that Becca decided to wander off on her own and try to come back to the beach. And what had happened was Becca got up over the dune and looked down and didn't see us down there because the dune was too high. So she just took off walking to try to find us. Four years old. Cute little bug just in her little blue swimsuit walking down the beach by herself, and she was lost. And when we figured out that Becca was lost there was a sense of urgency. You know what I'm saying? You parents understand what I'm talking about? When we figure out that people around us are lost, when we figure out that we're the fourth largest mission field in the world, there's a sense of urgency. So we immediately alerted, when we figured it out, we alerted the lifeguards, we uh, decided to start looking for her. Some people decided to stay right there to see if she came back to that spot. I decided to run one way, and her mom decided to run the other way on the beach. This is before the age of cell phones, and so we ran. And when I say ran, I, I want you to know I flew because there was a sense of urgency. I, I kicked off my flip-flops. I dropped down to that place in the sand where the water comes up and packs it down just enough so that it's the best place to get tread so that you can run really fast. And I would have kicked Usain Bolt's butt if he would have run me in a race because I was motivated. And I ran and I ran and I stopped and asked people and I ran and I stopped and asked people and I ran and I finally saw her. I still vividly remember that. Because there was a sense of urgency. Of course, then, it, then there's that awkward moment where you're like, oh man, I don't want to scare her, so I'm just like, hi, Becca, how you doing? <laughs> and she's looking up at me like, were you lost? What's going on? <laughs> I'm having fun. I'm meeting all these new friends, you know. <laughs> then I had another problem. Because as much 
as my heart had stopped beating for the last few minutes, I knew that her mom had gone up the other way and still didn't know that she was found. So I put Becca on my shoulders and I ran just as fast back up, dropped her off with the people and ran back up the other way because when your child is lost, you need to know where they are. You want them to be found. And that's what God is looking all around us, at the people that are all around us. I've had some time this summer to retool and to rethink and to think about what Parkview needs to be about. I've done some speaking and some national project stuff and some other things during the month of July. But part of it is just to be able to, to get away from it all and think about what we're doing. And you know what I've decided? What I've decided is we're, we're doing exactly the right things. We're not going to change any of it. We're going to reach, raise, and release. That's our, that's our creed around here. That's, that's our purpose statement. We're going to reach people for Jesus, raise them up as fully devoted followers, and, and release them to go do ministry. We're just going to keep doing it. But, but there's a more so of a sense of urgency for me coming back in August than there's been in a long time. Because I'm just realizing that we're losing ground. And even though we're one of the largest churches in the country and one of the fastest growing churches, there's not enough work that we're doing here to reach the people that are around us. So we have to do more. Because I have that sense of urgency. Because night is coming. And I know that. So how do we deal with this? Let me give you some strategy, okay? I'll give it, it's from Bill Hybels. It's called Living in 3D. He says, this is the way that we live in strategy as Christians if we're going to have a tattoo of lips on our arm, okay? We're going to have 3D. The first D is we've got to develop friendships. Now, for some of you, it won't be very hard because you haven't been believers for very long and, and all of your friends are non-Christians and that is wonderful. Here's the problem. The longer you become a Christian, the longer you are a Christian, the less likely you are to have non-Christian friends. You start avoiding all those non-Christian things. All of a sudden, all your time is taken up by, you know, doing Christian things. And you're going to go to small group and you're going to get involved in this and you're going to go to church and all those things are wonderful. But what happens is at the average Christian, by the time they're a Christian for seven years, they have no non-Christian friends anymore. So I'm, I'm encouraging you, I'm challenging you to go back and develop friendships with people who are far away from God. As a matter of fact, I, I mean, who is Jesus? What, what did Jesus do when he was here? He was always with the sinners, the tax collectors, and the prostitutes. He never hung out with religious people. He was with them all the time. I was thinking about it. Do you know where Jesus would be if he was, if he was breathing air on the planet right now? Do you know where he would be? He would not be at Parkview Christian Church in August 2012. He would be at Sturgis. <laughs> Wouldn't he? He'd be at Sturgis, man, I guarantee you. I mean, he would, he would be with the people that are the farthest away, the, the bi- biggest biker festival in the world. That's where he would be right now, hanging out with them, helping them to understand. Jesus said, I didn't come for the well, I came for the sick. And that's what we're supposed to do. And we've messed up this whole idea of being in the world, but not of the world. Christians have, we've encapsulated ourselves. We got our own music. We got our own bookstores. We got our own coffee shops. We have our own sports leagues. We got our own schools. And some of that is okay, but some of it's really not. Because we're here. The only reason Jesus left us here. Do you think Jesus left you here so you could just keep sinning? He, the only reason he left you here is so that you could use your mouth and your life and maybe bring somebody else with you. That's the only reason. If you don't have any non-Christian friends, if I don't have any non-Christian friends, then I'm missing the whole picture. There's really no reason for me to be here. Now, 
Of course, there are places that you shouldn't go. I'm not saying you ought to be at Sturgis. I'm not, you know, if you're a recovering alcoholic, you shouldn't be evangelizing in a bar. There's not a guy alive that should be evangelizing in a strip club. I'm not telling you you need to go to those kinds of places. You know why? Because my guess is you don't need to go anywhere. There are people all around you. You live somewhere, right? You work somewhere. You've got people all around you need to hear your story. They just need to hear it as good news. Donald Miller, in his book, Blue Like Jazz, talked about Penny, who became a Christian because of Nadine. And Penny said this, he wrote, The thing that I loved about Nadine, Penny said, was that I never felt like she was selling anything. She would talk about God as if she knew him, and she talked to him on the phone that day. She said, some Christians I had encountered felt like they had to sell God, like he was soap or a vacuum cleaner. And it's like they really weren't listening to me. They didn't really care. They just wanted me to buy their product. But Nadine made me feel like if I met Jesus, he would really like me. I can't explain how freeing that was. To realize that if I met Jesus, he would really like me. Friends, that's the good news. That's your simple tattoo message. Jesus likes me. Jesus helped me. Jesus likes you too. That's the first D. We develop friendships. The second D is we discover stories. There has to be something that you have in common with people. Discover their stories. Rick Warren wrote an article about evangelism recently where he said, there, you have something in common with everybody. He said, even the mafia, they have a loyalty to family. You have something in common with the mob. There's something that you have in common with absolutely everybody. And everybody is getting something right. So instead of dealing with the stuff that we disagree with, why don't we find stuff that we do agree with? Let me tell you the sad reality of 21st century Christianity. Most non-Christians avoid Christians because they think that we hate them. Do you know that a recent survey found that beside serial killers, the person that most people would not want to live next door to, besides serial killers, was a born-again Christian? Oh, please don't let the Flanders move in next to me. <laughs> right? What does that say about how we've shown the love of Christ to a lost and dying world? I've got to say this. This is why I hate the Chick-fil-A controversy. I hate it. So does Chick-fil-A. Dan Cathy didn't mean to stir up this controversy. It's not his fault. They asked him a question, he answered it. I totally agree with them. I understand biblical marriage is one man and one woman for a lifetime. That's absolutely true. But the last thing any of us need to do right now with that subject is to draw a line in the sand. We need to find people where they are, figure out what makes them tick, figure out why they think the way they think and do the things they do and believe the way they believe. We need a frame of reference for them. I'm talking about their families, finding out what they do in their free time. It's really very simple. You discover their story. Author and preacher Howard Hendricks said he never would have been saved if a man hadn't showed interest in his life. He said, I was nine. This is how old Howard Hendricks is. He said, I was nine years old and I was a little terror. One day I was out playing marbles when a man named Walt came along and invited me to Sunday school. Now, there was nothing appealing about anything with the word school in it, so I wasn't interested. So he made me another proposition, one I liked better. He said, you want to play a game of marbles with me? And after he had wiped me out with mar in marbles, he said, you want to learn how to play this game better? And by the time he taught me to play marbles over the next few days, he'd built such a relationship with me that I wanted to go 
to Sunday school. Dr. Hendricks said, of the 13 boys in the Sunday school class that this man taught, 11 of them ended up in vocational Christian ministry because one guy developed friendships and discovered stories. One man cared. The third D is we discern our next steps. The, the, what I'm saying is, you don't establish a relationship with somebody and then try to get them baptized the next day, okay? It, you know, I'm just like, hey, how about the why? I mean, that, then you're like the guy in the drum, okay? It's the next step. What is the next step for them? Maybe it's just, hey, how can I pray for you? Maybe it's a cup of coffee. Maybe it's, a, you know, a time when you can talk about something a little more serious and maybe you bring God into it. Let me give you one helpful hint. There's going to be one really easy way for you to do this. It's September 22nd. 23rd, we're going to start a sermon series called The Story. It was done by Randy Frazee and Max Lucado from Oak Hills Church in San Antonio. And uh, they put a Bible together. we got a Bible that we're going to do. And it's basically the story of the Bible in chronological order in 31 weeks. So we're literally going, I'm going to be in one sermon series from September 22nd until past Easter. With one break for Christmas Eve, we're going to go all the way through the Bible and help people understand the Bible. And I want a couple of things for you. Number one, you should start thinking right now about your neighbors, your friends, maybe people you don't have relationships with so that you've got the next month, month and a half to develop some friendships with them so that when it comes time, you can say, hey, we're doing this thing called the story. We'd love to have you come. I think this is going to be really interesting if you've ever wanted to know about the Bible. And people do, believe me. They don't have to be a believer in God. They want to understand how this Bible thing works, even if they're not going to believe in it. The second thing that you could do is host a group in your house. Just your family and friends. Just get a life group together. Just some people in your neighborhood say, hey, we're going to do this. We're going to talk about the story. We're going to talk about the Bible. We're going to go through it. We're going we're to do this together. We're going to get to know each other. Discern the next step. That's the third D. There's a fork in the road for people at some place. Perry Noble said it this way. Found people, find people. That's basically it. Found people, find people. So like I said, I've had some opportunity to kind of rethink things and what, you know, going to be 51 here soon. What is, what's the rest of life look like for me? Ministry, all those kinds of things. And that's what a summer break gives me a chance to do. And I've decided that I'm on exactly the right track in the next decade or two of ministry at Parkview and, and things that I've got to, left to do to accomplish in my life are not going to change because God called me very specifically to be a specific person. I'm going to read this creed that I, that I borrowed from a preacher from the 1950s. I'm going to read this for you, and I need you to understand, not all churches are the same, not all pastors are the same. God has put one thing in my heart that is preeminent, and that is this thing of evangelism, this thing of connecting people to God. That's what he's done for me, and you don't have to like that. You don't have to come to this church. You don't have to be a part of this church. There are other churches that do different things and emphasize different things, but this is always going to be the heart of Jesus. It's always going to be the heart of of Tim Harlow, so you need to understand that it's always going to be the heart of Parkview. And this is a, a creed for my life that I borrowed from a man named Samuel Shoemaker who wrote it this way. I stand by the door. I neither go too far in or stay too far out. The door is the most important door in the world. It is the door through which men walk when they want to find God. There's no use in my going way inside and staying there when so many are still outside and they as much as I crave to know where the door is. And all that so many ever find is only a wall where the door ought to be. And they creep along the wall like blind men with outstretched groping hands, feeling for a door, knowing there must be a door, yet they don't find it. So I stand by the door. 
The most tremendous thing in the world is for men to find that door, the door to God. The most important thing any man can do is to take a hold of one of those blind, groping hands and put it on the latch, the latch that only opens to a man's own touch. Men die outside that door as starving beggars die on cold nights in cruel cities in the dead of winter. They die for the want of what is within their grasp. They live on the other side of it because they haven't found it. So nothing else matters compared to helping them find it and open it and walk in and find him. So I stand by the door. Go in, great saints. Go all the way in. Go way down into the cavernous cellars, way up into the spacious attics. It is a vast, roomy house, this house where God is. Go into the deepest of hidden casements of withdrawal and silence and sainthood. Some must inhabit those rooms and know the depths and the heights of God and call out to the rest of us how wonderful it is. And sometimes I take a deeper look in, and sometimes I venture in a little farther. But my place seems to be closer to the opening, so I stand by the door. I admire the people who go way in, but I wish they would not forget how it was before they got in. Because then they would be able to help the people who have not found the door yet. You can go in too deeply and stay too long and forget the people outside the door. As for me, I shall take my old accustomed place, near enough to God to hear him and know he is there, but not so far from men as not to hear them and remember that they are there too. Outside the door, thousands of them, millions of them, but more important to me, one of them, two of them, ten of them, whose hands I'm intended to put on the latch. So I will stand by the door and wait for those who seek it. Because I'd rather be a doorkeeper. So I stand by the door. Once upon a time, an old man crossed a bridge into a city that looked sad and dark even in the daylight. Can a city cry? Well, if a city could, then this one would. The Ferris wheel stood still and rusted. No one would dare to swim in the lake filled with trash and neglect. The gates of the city were broken when the flower man walked toward them, but he was glowing as if he knew a secret. Well, no one notices the flower man, despite his glowing and even his chuckling as he seems to challenge the despair, the division, the danger, and the darkness all around him. The city is blind to him. They are looking down, looking down the way people do when they have given up. The flower man finds a run-down house in the center of town and says, this'll do just fine. Strangely, no one notices him as he literally glows with anticipation. The young girl is preoccupied with her boredom. The man sits in a bath but never feels clean. The painter stares at the blank canvas. The elderly woman carries too much. The thief is plotting and no one notices the flower man. No one except the little girl next door. The flower man sets to work, replacing brokenness with beauty. Two little girls are just in awe. A few adults who brave a glance are mostly cynical or even offended. Most of the folks from the sad city hurry by without even looking up. And then it happened. The moment the flower man knew would come, he knew it would change everything. Just as the thief was plotting to steal the beauty that the neighbor still didn't understand, the flower man gave it away. A gift so delicious that the little girl next door begged her mommy for one. The milkman was plain old shocked, but the artist was inspired. The flower man gets busy doing what he came to do, giving flowers away. The city seems to whisper and even shout, Life is coming! The streets are aglow with it. Can it come to the fountain? The little boy asks. It is coming to my canvas, the artist declares. It has come to my window? 
the bathing man amuses. Despite the beauty all around, to some, life can be frightening. So the little girl next door says a quiet goodbye and has moved quickly away. But life makes the old woman smile and the old man scratches head. The mother prays, the beggar receives, and the thief weeps. Because life cannot be stolen, it can only be given away. The flower man has a cookout and the streets turn into a block party. Dancing, music, laughter, and games. Loneliness is swallowed up by joy. The canvases are beautiful. The stories of the ancients are told. Intimacy is in the window and the fountain is flowing again. And joy lights the night. Games and music fill the streets. Their hearts are pulsing with life. Their hands are filled to overflowing. They cannot see over it. They cannot see that the flower man has packed up his bag of seeds and journeyed on. The flower man leaves the city aglow with love, answered prayers, and hope. Why did he leave? He left because there is someone who needs a flower, someone who couldn't get to him, so he will go to them, and he will bring them life. So that's who we are, and that's the mark of a believer. That's the ink you ought to have. Be the flower man. That's all I'm saying. We're going to have communion right now, and I realize that I've just given this message kind of based on the fact that you're a believer and you want to share this news. The, the problem is I know in a crowd this size, plenty of you out there aren't or haven't given your life to Jesus yet, or maybe you don't even know where you stand in this relationship, I want to help you to understand something. Right now we're going to have communion, and we're going to give you the opportunity to do that. And here's what's really interesting. What's interesting about this is that the blind guy did not know who Jesus was yet either when he started sharing the story. He did not really understand. Verse 35 of John chapter 9, Jesus heard that they had thrown this man out of the synagogue for telling what he did know. And when he found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? That was the phrase for the Messiah. Do you believe in the Son of Man? The man said, who is he, sir? Tell me so I may believe in him. Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he's the one who's speaking to you now. I'm the Messiah, basically, Jesus said. And the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Right now, we give you the opportunity to understand that Jesus Christ is the only Son of God who came to this earth to die for your sins and rose again to prove that someday we would all be free from our sins. Whether you understood that before this moment right now doesn't really matter. What matters is that you shouldn't walk out of here because night is coming. You should not walk out of here until you've made that decision to believe and to worship. And we give you that opportunity right now. Let's pray together. Lord, there are people here who need to believe and they need to worship. Help them to open their hearts to you right now and say, Jesus, I don't understand all this. I don't have the Sean Connery theological answer to the questions. I don't have the ability to understand all the things about you and, and why things are sometimes good and sometimes bad. I don't understand why there's blindness in the world or sin or suffering. But I do know this, Lord. I know that I'm blind and I'd like to see. And if you would come and live inside of my heart, 
I believe that could happen. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Could be a reality for me because of amazing grace. So right now, Lord, those who need to pray this prayer, let them pray. Jesus, I give you my heart. I take the gift of the cross. As I eat this bread and drink this cup, I am committing myself to you, to follow you, to ask you to forgive me for my sins. I'm going to sign up. And I'm going to be the flower man. I'm going to be the person who stands by the door. I'm going to wear the cross tattoo, yes, but I'm going to wear the lips tattoo. And I'm going to, I'm going to follow you and tell people everything that you've done for me. Lord, I just pray that you'll be with us all as we commune right now because this time of eating this bread and drinking this cup is just exactly the time when we come to you submit ourselves to you and we believe and we worship just like the blind man so help us in jesus name